0: It's called computational propaganda. It's primarily spread by Twitter bots and Facebook accounts. It's how fake news, designed to sway public opinion, sway your vote. It's how all that gets around.
1: At the moment, um, the democracies that we seem to be suffering the most include Brazil, possibly Germany and the United States.
0: On this episode of the Conjectural Manufacturing Consensus, online, I'm Robert Frederick. If you're on social media very much, you've probably seen evidence yourself, read output from, or even interacted with a highly automated social media account, a bot. Philip Howard is the principal investigator of the Computational Propaganda Project at Oxford University.
1: Our goal is to produce large amounts of evidence gathered systematically so that we can make some safe, if not conservative, generalizations about where public life is going.
0: Because public life is going more and more online. Howard was speaking in a lecture hall at the European Conference of Science Journalists held in Copenhagen in late June, which I attended.
1: At the moment, um, the democracies that we seem, that seem to be suffering the most include Brazil, possibly Germany, and the United States.
0: And in the United States, we have a history of using propaganda, a term that now has chiefly negative connotations but was studied quite extensively with the idea for public good. That sometimes the public needed to be guided when important decisions needed to be made quickly. One of the early pioneers who applied science to this public guidance was Edward Bernays, nephew to Sigmund Freud, the famed psychoanalyst. In 1947, Bernays published an essay well-known to communication scholars titled The Engineering of Consent. He wrote, With pressing crises and decisions to be faced, a leader frequently cannot wait for the people to arrive at even general understanding. In certain cases, democratic leaders must play their part in leading the public through the engineering of consent to socially constructive goals and values. Of course, the same tools for the engineering of consent to socially constructive goals and values can also be used for the engineering of consent to socially destructive goals and values, or, say, marketing. And Bernays, who may be quite correctly referred to as the father of modern public relations, is behind why we think disposable Dixie cups are more sanitary than reusing a washed glass, why American society was so quick to accept the addition of fluoride to the public water supply, and why bacon and eggs is often considered the all-American breakfast. Marketing, marketing, marketing. Fast forward to 1988, when Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman published Manufacturing Consent The Political Economy of the Mass Media, which begins with a description that sounds like an indictment that, quote, the mass media serve as a system for communicating messages and symbols to the general populace. It is their function to amuse, entertain, and inform and to inculcate individuals with the values, beliefs, and codes of behavior that will integrate them into the institutional structures of the larger society. In a world of concentrated wealth and major conflicts of class interest, to fulfill this role requires systematic propaganda. Bernays, Chomsky, and Herman, though, of course— we're constructing or examining messages to convince real people. Today, with automated bots, Philip Howard says it's truly manufactured consensus. Not even the people are real.
1: So, in the first presidential debate, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had automated accounts tweeting loudly about how successful they were. But over time, between the first debate, the second, and the third, Trump's bots started announcing that he had won the debate earlier and earlier in the day, such that by the third date, by the third debate, Trump's bots over Twitter were announcing that he had won the debate before the debate was broadcast.
0: Would that be convincing to real people, to voters? One wonders. But Howard says that convincing people of something isn't necessarily the goal of such campaigns to sway public opinion.
1: The earliest of campaigns originated in Russia, the best of them that we've caught involved the spin around the Malaysian Airlines flight that was shot down over Ukraine in the summer of 2014. The goal for this kind of communications campaign and the automation behind it isn't to put out one counter narrative or put out An alternative perspective but to seed multiple conflicting stories that different proportions of the public will all believe in equal small measure. The effect is that now um, there's at least four of these stories explaining why the Malaysian Airlines flight was shot down and having multiple conspiracies in play helps at least from the Russian perspective to prevent any political reaction
0: And, as you might imagine, in the days before the 2016 U.S. election, the bots were at it, spreading more and more junk.
1: And we found that in Michigan, there was about a one-to-one ratio. For every piece of professionally produced news content, there was one piece of junk.
0: Some of the data for the Computational Propaganda Project came from Twitter itself, and from analyzing what Howard and his colleagues could from public groups on Facebook.
1: The big data analysis involves big scoops of mostly Twitter data. Uh, Facebook doesn't collaborate well with researchers. It doesn't have an API that we can actually make much use of. So there's a lot of phenomenon that we think that we can identify on Twitter that we hope speaks to what goes on on Facebook. But um, without, um, without being able to check these things, without collaborations with Facebook, um, it's difficult to know.
0: Other data for the Computational Propaganda Project was from interviews with a few of the people who program bots. How do you get such an interview?
1: As with any kind of ethnography of um, marginal or deviant communities, um, the only secret sauce to the method is time. And finding one respondent who, is, uh, who gives a good interview who then agrees to be a fixer.
0: Setting up other interviews... And it was through these interviews Howard and his team learned such things as who these people were, where they lived, and why they were programming bots, these highly automated social media accounts, to sway public opinion. So
1: some of our subjects are from Seattle and San Francisco and Brooklyn. And they're uh, from Montana. They're libertarian programmers who are expressing their citizenship. This is political speech for them. They're expressing themselves. And um, that's another group that does this work. And their clients are not the US government, they're political parties and lobbyists.
0: But to be clear, Howard says, the large campaigns of bots, the ones working to affect our 2016 election that he and his team were able to discover, they all originated in Russia.
1: We did not find them from China. Everything we found so far um, seems to originate in Russia. Over the last year, there are also these predictable crises in democracies. In fact, this is to some degree what makes democracies soft targets. Elections are sensitive moments for political structures in in our democracies. And so we've done a series of memos over the last year about automation and junk news. Uh, We started with the Brexit referendum. We did the three US presidential debates and the election itself. We did the German presidential. Mostly as an exercise to to do some benchmarking for the next presidential voting um, in October. And we did the two stages of the French election and the two stages of the UK election.
0: In response, Howard says that civil society groups in every country are struggling in the face of these automated political attacks via social media. And they're struggling because they don't know how to mount an effective response without also resorting to bots. And so sometimes these civil society groups and or individuals who represent a particular view or stance sometimes they just end up leaving the social media as a result of these attacks many of the campaigns that we've studied
1: are particularly good at driving women off social media so prominent feminists prominent feminist intellectuals female reporters uh, female politicians are also soft targets and there are multiple examples of um, prominent female intellectuals being driven off social media um, with, um, with, uh, with campaigns against their, their public life.
0: After Howard's presentation and the question and answer period was over, I went up to talk with him further. Hi. Hi. You mentioned there was various techniques for discouraging women from remaining yes. on their accounts. I mm-hmm. wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those are.
1: Well, it's mostly sexual harassment over Twitter, um, and it includes some... Um, you know, dirty words and um, nasty commentary, and uh, it's there have been now multiple in the U.S. Um, pop stars, sort of local political figures who have just been driven off Twitter because of the sexual harassment online.
0: And so, this is a highly automated account doing this kind of work, or
1: sometimes it appears to be uh, highly automated accounts from the Alt Right in the U.S. So, do you remember the GamerGate story that involved so GamerGate? Uh, and there was automation behind some of those attacks.
0: Okay. Is there something that people can do? Is there something if somebody starts to receive or is a subject of these attacks that they can say, oh, I've just been targeted?
1: The platforms are getting better and better at responding to um, user reports of hate speech or sexual harassment. So, I mean, that's the default thing. Report the other user. If if Twitter doesn't act fast enough or you know the the network of bot attacks seems to be really expansive then people pull off social media and sometimes there's a, um, a goodbye tweet where people say I'm leaving because I'm done this is too much and they pull off and and that's that tends to have an impact too.
0: Uh, does that stop the bot from continuing the work or?
1: Many of the bots that we've uh, many of the automated accounts that we've studied shift from issue to issue or focus to focus some of them go quiet after an election, but there was a handful of bots from the Brexit conversation that switched to being interested in U.S. politics, right, and then switched to being interested in the Italian referendum, and then they switched to being interested in the German election, and then the two French, so there's there's a little bit of migration, and I mean, that, that suggests there's some direction behind it all, uh, but I, most of the code that goes into creating a bot gets used and repurposed in different ways.
0: Do you have a current list of those bots that you, or, or those highly automated accounts that do you think are out there, but uh, if haven't... You,
1: yes, if you, if you have a particular country that you're interested in, then I could make, we make lists of the top 100 highly automated accounts. There's occasionally false positives in them, but yes, in principle, I mean, I don't have one right now on my laptop, but I would have some old ones from the U.S. election, but um, if you send me a note, I'm happy to th- and it's a data set we already have, I'd be happy to carve out some, some material for
0: you. Okay. But you don't publish that as, as part of your bot prevention. Can, it's uh, more about studying it as it happens. No.
1: Um, we're going to be putting up our replication data this summer. Um, and so for each of the reports, we'll, Twitter has a policy where you can't share the data. If you share data, Twitter won't let you study it anymore. So we will be providing the tweet IDs so that you can see which accounts are there, but we won't can't provide any of the content. So I guess I'm saying that they have a policy that kind of discourages us from collaborating too much.
0: Does that so seem like a good idea to you? No, to have I agree,
1: that? yeah, no, I agree having some, you know, we can identify, we can identify hundreds of accounts um, and then we can publicize the tweet IDs. Somebody else could sort of reverse engineer and look up those accounts fairly easily um, but your question is great. Twitter has never asked us to... We've offered to collaborate on this, but they don't... They've never asked us for our submissions. Yeah. Information. yeah. <laughs> thank you.
0: Yeah, of course. Thank you. Indeed, as you heard my colleague in the press say, that's the news. The lack of apparent interest by these social media companies in collaborating with researchers to shut down these highly automated accounts that attack people. Howard and his team are expected to release their data and next set of reports this summer, which you can find on their website, The Computational Propaganda Project. You can find a link to it on our website, theconjectural.com. Finally today, I have an announcement. We're taking a break from the show because I'm running for political office with an election this fall, 2017. We may or may not return because if I win... I'll be mayor of my small town on top of my full-time job. And the original purpose of this podcast? To experiment to find better ways to talk about science news? Well, the world's changed significantly in the two years since I started this monthly show. And, yes, of course, that includes my world, too. For example, in July 2015, when I started this show, I was a freelance science journalist. Now I'm digital managing editor of American Scientist magazine, producing their monthly podcast. In July 2015, there was science denialism, but it was limited, mostly to the fringes, including a brand new, extremely unlikely, or so we thought at the time, candidate to be president of these United States. Now there's science denialism in the mainstream, including in the White House. The experiment to find better ways to talk about science news, well, I do that in my job. There are different problems with higher priority now, at least for me, in what I do when I'm not working my job. But I've learned a lot from this experiment in science news, and although the results of this experiment would be difficult to summarize in only a few words, of course, for you, I'll give it a try. There is power in a story told well. And the most popular podcast episodes, the one downloaded the most, received the most emails about, they were the ones in which I used traditional story forms with characters. I explored tensions. Stories had a beginning, middle, and end. This result is not terribly surprising, but it is fundamentally different than science itself, which doesn't have an end and doesn't depend on characters. But often the scientific enterprise succeeds despite characters. That's because the power of scientific thinking is not in reaching a conclusion, thinking deductively like Sherlock Holmes does, mostly, but in disproving guesses. And we do not live our lives by disproving guesses. I don't decide that walking down a dark alley is safe just because I've experimented by walking down dark alleys. And speaking of dark alleys, or things in the past that I've avoided, for the most part, before, I'm entering politics because I enjoy identifying problems in communities and working creatively to solve them. It's been a characteristic of every career I've had, from management consulting to textbook editing, teaching to science journalism, this show's experiment had identified a problem, A problem with how science news is delivered as something new, something wrong. As something new, something wrong. So that the public learns through repetition that what is new in science today may be wrong in science tomorrow. So why even bother to learn what's new? And through this show I worked, with your input, to explore new forms of talking about science. So the takeaway... In doing a good story about science news, it's not enough to describe a problem. A problem, carefully stated, is only half solved, as the saying goes. It's not enough to describe the characters who are working to solve it. Not enough to describe the tension surrounding the problem. Not enough to describe the reason the problem matters. Not enough to give the story a beginning, middle, and end. A conclusion. That's because, as I've learned from doing this show... Through the second most popular podcast episodes, which all shared the characteristic of this my taking extreme care to figure out a way to give the story an ending, but not the science a conclusion. I struggled to find ways to allow the problem, the scientific problem, to continue, to allow that more data would be gathered, to allow for more experiments that would be done to allow that there might be some scientists who disagree, to allow that all knowledge that we create is based on incomplete information. And that is okay, because all knowledge, even scientific knowledge, is, in some sense, conjectural. You've been listening to The Conjectural, a show that's been running an experiment. The data for this experiment? Your feedback to theconjectural.com, where you can still give feedback and download transcripts at the very least until this November's election. Support for what may be this final episode comes from the European Science Journalism Conference and from American Scientist Magazine. I'm Robert Frederick. Thanks for joining us.